Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Philippe Nguyen and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. So in the episode today, we're going to talk about the medication-assisted treatment of opioid dependence and harm reduction strategies and harm minimization in people with opioid use disorder and in particular heroin use. So Fergal, can you tell me a bit about the philosophy behind medication-assisted treatment of opioid dependence? Sure. So I think it's important to understand the synonym. Medication-assisted treatment of opioid dependence, MATOD, is otherwise known as opioid replacement therapy, ORT, or opioid agonist therapy, OAT. And I think the preferred acronym where we work in, in uh, Australia is now OAT, O-A-T opioid agonist therapy. But nonetheless, I like ORT, opioid replacement therapy, because it alludes to what exactly is going on. We are replacing one opioid for another opioid. So we are replacing heroin with another opioid. And a lot of people ask me, well, aren't you just prolonging the, the addiction? Shouldn't you just lock them up, throw away the key? Well, you have to understand that most people who are dependent on opioids are dependent on opioids which are short-acting. Therefore, they have multiple episodes of craving, euphoria, and withdrawal throughout the day. And if you're going through three or four cycles of craving, euphoria, and withdrawal every day, there is absolutely no way that you can actually contemplate your role in society or your identity, or you cannot meet your social obligations, and therefore people disown you and you lose your personal relationships. And that goes back to the loss of relationships being, for me, one of the key diagnostic um, flags for, uh, for addiction. So we, most people who are addicted to opioids are addicted to short-acting opioids. And the provision of long-acting opioids, such as methadone or buprenorphine or whatever formulation it may come, smooths out the daily cycles of craving, euphoria, and withdrawal, so that you don't have that repeated withdrawal, you don't have that repeated craving, and you don't have the repeated euphoria, all of which interfere with your function in society. And not all, because they are very long-acting, they don't have, they're not very euphorogenic as well. So it just allows you to avoid the unpleasantness of the cycles of short-acting dependency and it allows you the headspace within which to contemplate your recovery. And so that is why we are effectively replacing heroin or whatever other illicitly used uh, opioid in question. We're replacing that with prescribed opioids, which are long-acting with long half-lives, which are not euphorogenic and which do not, but which do block the cravings and the withdrawals. And it's a really interesting space to be in because when you think about it or look at it on the outset it does seem counterproductive and it does seem like it's encouraging substance use but in as we were talking in our earlier episode about uh, dependence and in particular the focus that we had on addiction and how uh, opioid uh, addiction takes over someone's life by putting someone on opiate agonist therapy, we are smoothing out the aspects of addiction and helping them to reintegrate back into society by stabilizing some of the 
biochemical triggers that would cause that uh, withdrawal tolerance effect. Is, is that a fair summary, Fergal? Absolutely. We're, we're using key words like stabilize and smooth out. But there's another point to this as well. The use of opioid agonist therapy, opioid replacement therapy, MATOD, we are going to have to standardize our acronyms. I don't know, I, I prefer ORT for some reason. But the use of ORT does not actually prolong the natural history of opioid use disorder. So giving methadone and buprenorphine does not actually prolong the time during which patients would remain addicted to opioids. So if you've got a good going heroin addiction, you're going to be addicted for heroin for at least 10 years. The provision of ORT does not actually prolong that. It may actually shorten that duration, but doesn't prolong it. So that's another important aspect for people to understand why we actually give opioids to treat opioid use disorder. It doesn't prolong the natural history. That's a very good point. And also, we should also mention the mortality benefit from mm. um, o OAT, in that we mm. know that periods of abstinence do increase the risk of overdose and death. And we also yeah. know that stabilizing someone with OAT decreases the chance of overdose and death as well. And that includes patients who we know some patients, particularly on methadone, will probably use heroin on top. But methadone and buprenorphine uh, do help stabilize patients and do decrease the chance of dying. And we know people who inject heroin, inject opioids or use opiates inappropriately are at a much higher chance of dying than the general population. So, I mean, if we, if we look at the, the, the risks for people on heroin, first of all, <clears throat> so the top three causes of death for someone who's addicted to heroin is firstly, polysubstance overdose, secondly, polytrauma, and thirdly, suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yes. We know that the average age of death for someone with heroin use disorder is about 34 years old. We know that there's a 1% to 3% per year risk of death and that for any given age, you are four times as likely to die if you are heroin, if you, if you use heroin, than if you don't. So the bottom line is heroin use is highly risky. You are very, you're much more at risk of dying than someone who's not using heroin. So, so the bottom line message is that heroin kills, right? Yes. And so in yeah. that context, it's really important to consider opioid replacement therapy as, a, as, a, as an effective therapy that reduces the risk of dying. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of kind of uh, epidemiological evidence throughout the world that demonstrates the safety of methadone, or rather not the safety of methadone, but rather the, the ability of methadone to reduce the risk of death in someone who is dependent on heroin. An Australian study um, actually demonstrated for the, over the, the lifespan of the study that methadone reduces the risk of death overall by 29%. I mean, that, that's vast. Yeah? Ab absolutely. Um, and we know as well with methadone that methadone reduces heroin use, it reduces injecting behavior, and it reduces mortality. But we, we're not even talking about the societal benefits from uh, methadone and buprenorphine or suboxone in that by using prescribed medication, by getting someone with opioid use disorder onto the program, we are 
increasing that individual's contact with the health services, increasing contact with a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a nurse, adequately addressing other health concerns that may not have been addressed properly, likely decreasing criminal activity because this is a prescribed medication at a set price. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about multiple flow-on benefits that are not just related to taking a dose of medication. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, the key thing that you're saying is that engagement actually saves lives. And we know that engagement saves lives. And so that's a really important point to consider when we, were act- when we are contemplating the involuntary discharge from service of certain clients. You know, I personally feel that all services should have a very high threshold uh, before we even consider discharging a client which means that you have to toler- you have to have the innate ability to tolerate behavior, challenging behavior that any other service might not, because you know that if someone disengages from services, they're at a higher risk of death. And I think this challenging behavior is something that we all come across. And it's something that I hear from a lot of my hospital colleagues and some of my general practice colleagues. And it's one of the major stresses for healthcare professionals in in dealing with patients with substance use disorder. And in my own experience, when I reflect on challenging behaviours in particular, sometimes there are some patient factors there, but a lot of the time, some of that challenging behaviour is in response to previous poor treatment or inadequate Mm -hmm. treatment of, say, withdrawal symptoms or inadequate treatment of pain or the other conditions going ahead with that. Uh, So I find by actually treating the patient and the condition they're presenting with appropriately, it actually improves behavior paradoxically. Has that been your experience as well, Fergal? Well, absolutely, but I wouldn't use the word paradoxically. I think that, you know, a lot of my colleagues actually challenge me when I say the phrase challenging behavior and they correct me and they say behavior is the challenge. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that the etiology of the behavior that challenges is actually some, something um, you know, inherently dysfunctional in the patient. It could be an expression of unmet need, which then therefore makes physicians and services reflect upon why there is this unmet need. And absolutely, appropriately treated opioid use disorder does not cause challenging behavior, doesn't cause behaviors the challenge. You know, it's, it's, and it's very often is inappropriately managed uh, opioid use disorder causes these problems. And also, we also need to understand the stigma that patients go through. You know, they, they're always told to stand in that queue or stand over there or they're looked down upon. They're judged because they've got an opioid use disorder, because they've made the poor choices. They have brought it on themselves. Look at the state they've got into them. They've, they've got themselves into So we are asking people who have been stripped of their identity, stripped of their resilience to meet us halfway in a world that is frightening, challenging, uh, unloving, and then to, to, and without the tools that we would rely on to actually behave in a way that others consider socially appropriate. You know, That's why I think that when we have an episode of challenging of of behavior that challenges it, it it, it behoves the clinician, it behoves the service to engage in some introspection and ask oneself, ask itself, was there anything that I could do or that the service could do differently to actually improve the situation? It's not the patient's fault. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a challenge. Absolutely, and I think it's also important that we paint a realistic picture about uh, OAT and what can be done and what can't be done. And this is a huge topic, and naturally we'll be breaking this up over multiple episodes to do it appropriate justice. So in the episode thus far, we've talked a lot about OAT and the mortality benefits of it, and not only the mortality benefits, but also the societal benefits and essentially how OAT can facilitate whole patient care for someone with opioid use disorder. And this is an extensively evidence-based and studied intervention, which has got decades of, of good quality data backing up and how it decreases injecting behavior, increases um, integration back into healthcare services and saves lives. So I think that's a lot of information that we've covered in one episode. This is a huge topic that we're going to be breaking up over multiple episodes and talking about practicalities and strategies that we use in managing patients with um, opioid use disorder and how we holistically treat them with OAT. Thanks for your company on yet another episode of Cracking Addiction. Bye for now.